0: my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ we come this evening to draw our thoughts to a conclusion on David's very wonderful prayer to Yahweh in thanksgiving for the promises that God had made to him it's a wonderful prayer as we saw in our last study a prayer of joyful thankfulness and also a prayer expressing David's awareness of Yahweh's reality in being able to bring all these things to pass David never doubted, David never doubted for one moment that the things that God had promised him would not come to pass and so as we draw these uh, thoughts to a close from chapter 7 in verse 25 where we begin this evening You'll notice that it would of course have been nice to have been able to have dealt with this whole section uh, together We might perhaps just read back a few verses just to pick up the thread of what he is saying In verse 21 For thy word's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them Wherefore thou art great O Yahweh Elohim For there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom Elohim went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land, thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. For thou hast confirmed thyself, thy people Israel, to be a people unto thee forever. And thou, Yahweh, art become their Elohim, their mighty ones. And so we continue the last concluding section from verse 25, where David says, And now, O Yahweh Elohim, the word which thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever, and do as thou hast said. And here we should notice the emphasis that David places upon the divine name. That David had a very clear understanding of the doctrine of God manifestation. There can be no doubt whatever. It is expressed so many times, particularly in the book of Psalms. If uh, you would like to follow through a little exercise sometime, take a concordance. And look up the number of times in the book of Psalms where David uses the phrase, for thy namesake. Just look up the word name or names, apostrophe, and see how many times it is applied in the Psalms to Yahweh himself. So David understood the doctrine of God manifestation. He understood the significance of that name that was given to Moses at the bush. He understood that Yahweh would manifest himself in all his glory in a multitude of all the redeemed. So here he emphasizes that when he says, let thy name be magnified forever. And you know, that is an absolutely meaningless expression. Unless to David, that name meant something very special. If we just talk about anyone's average name, Think, for example, of the most common names that there are in our English language. The names that predominate, for example, in this country. Names like Smith, Brown, Jones. And there are other very, very common names, which if you open a telephone directory and try and look for someone of that name, look forward to spending a half an hour trying to find the one that you want. So the idea of, say, attaching some special importance to a name, such as a common everyday name, would be really quite meaningless so that when David uses this expression let thy name be magnified forever for the hidden period the olam it's got to mean something to David that is very very important so here is the continuing theme of God's manifestation for example we saw it in verse 21 for thy word's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done All these great things. In verse 22, wherefore thou art great, O Yahweh Elohim, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee. And you'll notice a reference to the word in verse 23 and in verse 25, as we've just seen, O Yahweh Elohim, and so on, for thy name's sake, let it be magnified. He who will be, So the usage of the name and titles in this verse is rather interesting in itself. O now, O Yahweh Elohim, he who will be mighty ones, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever, and do as thou hast said, and let thy name be magnified forever. Notice this too. Yahweh Sabaoth, is the Elohim over Israel, he who will be armies, Yahweh will manifest himself in a belligerent manner, that is the belligerent title of the deity, he will manifest himself in a belligerent manner to subdue the nations as David was about to do as we shall see in chapter 8 God willing as a type of Christ. Yahweh will manifest himself in that belligerent way in subduing the nations, destroying their power that he might establish his kingdom in fulfilment of the promise he has made to David. So he says in verse 26, Let thy name be magnified forever, saying, Yahweh of armies is the mighty ones over Israel. And so here we see how important these things were to David. And in verse 26, that is brought out very, very beautifully. And David, of course, in those words, is also emphasising his own personal covenant relationship with the deity. At the same time as he is mentioning Yahweh's covenant relationship with his people multitudinously, that is the nation of Israel. For David says, What nation is there anywhere upon the face of the earth like unto thy people Israel? And so in verse 27 he says, For thou, O Yahweh of Armies, the Elohim, the mighty ones of Israel, hast revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee an house. Therefore hath thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. As we look at that verse... Notice the margin there. Thou hast unveiled the ear of thy servant. That's Rotherham's translation of that particular verse. And the margin is correct. Instead of just reading, thou hast revealed to thy servant, the term is, as in the margin, openeth the ear. So we prefer Rotherham's translation. Thou hast unveiled the ear of thy servant. And we know that the ear is the organ provided by Yahweh to the human body by which it hears things that are said unto it. And we are therefore reminded of Paul in Romans 10 and verse 17 that faith cometh by hearing the word of God. And needless to say, David had the faith that he did possess because he understood and believed the word of God. Thou hast unveiled the ear of thy servant. We're reminded of the words in Revelation 2 and verse 7 that recur, or occur we should say, seven times in those seven letters. It is the only phrase in the letters to the seven ecclesias that is repeated or set down seven times. Hear, let him that hath an ear hear what the Spirit saith unto the Ecclesiastes. And that's what David is talking about here. And how blessed we have been, brethren and sisters. But Yahweh in his great mercy has unveiled our ear. He has taken away as though it were a veil, which is like a covering over the ears and prevents and has prevented the majority of mankind from willingly having that veil removed that they might hear the word of Yahweh and respond to it. But how blessed we have been that we have, like David, had the veil removed from our ear. He has unveiled the ear of us, His servants, that we might hearken unto His word and receive it with gladness and with joy and in humble submission to the performance of His will. And so in verse 28 David goes on with his prayer and says And now O Adonai Yahweh He who will be rulers He introduces now another title together with the name And now O Adonai Yahweh Thou art that Elohim And thy words be true And thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant Young's literal translation renders the opening phrase there Thou art God himself and uh, several uh, 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 renderings uh, pr- provide the rendering Thou art the God and that is probably in the nearest we can get to the literal Hebrew and that's why Young translates it as Thou art God himself because in all probability the nearest we can get to a literal translation is thou art the Elohim in other words there is only one true deity there is only one eternal spirit that is the source of life the source of creation the source of power that sustains every living creature only one and David is the first to acknowledge that and yet at the same time as we have seen he has also acknowledged that that one eternal spirit will eventually manifest himself in a vast multitude of all the redeemed. And so he says in verse 28, And thy words be true. And the Revised Version renders that, Thou art God, and thy words are truth. Thy words are truth. If we want a definition of what truth is, turn to the Word of God. That is one thing that is absolutely true. So here you see, we find David once again completely attuned to the mind that would be revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. In that they were of oneness of mind in their worship of the Father, although of course David never had the perfection of mind that the Son of God did. But nevertheless, as David says here, Thy words are truth, the Lord Jesus Christ said in John 17 and verse 17 thy word is the truth as it should be rendered from the literal Greek in John 17 verse 17 thy word is the truth and David is here saying precisely the same thing and so now in verse 29 the final verse in this chapter David says as he draws this prayer this wonderful joyful prayer of gladness and thanksgiving as he draws it to a conclusion he prays in verse 29, therefore now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant that it may continue forever before thee. For the hidden period, the olah, the Hebrew word olam, it, it, it defines an unspecified period of time. It simply means literally the hidden period. And we know of course that that hidden period which is revealed to us actually, we say that it's it's only ever revealed in the book of Revelation, but it's not, it's basically revealed to us in Daniel, that it will be a period of 1,000 years. Daniel gives us the clue, and we found the fact it's spelled out in in actual numbers and figures in the book of Revelation, a kingdom of 1,000 years. So that hidden period, which was unknown to many in Israel, was later revealed to be a period of 1,000 years. So he says, let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant. And it seems as though that phrase is an allusion to Numbers 6, verses 24 to 27, which we all recall the words that we sing when we receive a new brother or sister into fellowship. The words that were used by the priest when he came out from the tabernacle or out from the temple and he blessed the people. The word bless here is exactly the same word as occurs in that passage in Numbers chapter 6. And Young's literal translation renders this phrase, and now begin and bless the house of thy servant. And that's how it should be understood. And now begin and bless the house of thy servant. In other words, David saw unfolding throughout time that was to come. A long period of time that would elapse before this wonderful promise would be fulfilled. But he readily acknowledged that Yahweh would immediately begin the work of bringing the covenant to fruition. Yahweh, David knew of course that Yahweh had continued to work toward the fulfilment of the Edenic covenant. And the promise made to Abraham was in many respects a, a, an extension of the Edenic covenant. Now the prominent the, the covenant made to David is an extension of the Abrahamic in that sense. Because all the three covenants of promise are all linked together. And they're all really of <coughs> one mind and one purpose. And the as far as the promise made to Abraham was concerned... From the time the promise was made, Yahweh began to work to bring that covenant toward fulfilment. So therefore down through the ages, God has continued to work toward the fulfilment of his purpose, which has been expressed in those three great covenants of promise. And now David says, And with thy blessing, let the house of thy servant be blessed forever." something interesting to contemplate here the the, the fact that both Saul and David had been given a time of testing for this very reason Saul failed his time of testing as we've seen in our studies in the earlier part of David's life but David succeeded in pleasing God despite all his weaknesses and failings Because basically, David was a man of the truth. Even though he showed weakness, even though he failed on on many occasions, many of course of which are are certainly not recorded in scripture. But you see, David was a man who had his mind centred upon Yahweh, who humbled himself before his God, who submitted to the will of his God, who wanted to please his God more than anything else. A disposition that we have not seen in our studies that was apparent in King Saul before him. But the point is, brethren and sisters, David had been tested and tried and found worthy to receive this covenant. But yet, David would be tested again and again and again because faith must be proven under trial. And we all fit into the same category. Sometimes, perhaps, we go through a very difficult period, a very long, harsh, bitter trial. We may think to ourselves when the clouds lift and the sunshine comes back into our life again, in a manner of speaking, we might think, Well, I'm that pleased that that is over. Now everything's all right. Everything's going to be fine from now on. And maybe hours later, days later, perhaps weeks later, another trial will face us. You see the testing continues on and David would still be tested again and again because faith must be proven under trial. And David of course is now possessing, as we can readily understand, a certain confidence in the future. And it's expressed in the joy of his prayer from the time we start reading of his response. To, uh, to Yahweh uh, From the time we find in verse 18 That David went in before Yahweh And said who am I O Adonai Yahweh What is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto This was a small thing in thy sight, and so on And he pours his heart out before Yahweh And as the prayer unfolds So more and more he sees the reality Of what Yahweh has promised to him And you can see him here uh, being perhaps dominated by a certain sense of confidence in the future, which is all well and good. It's all well and good. We should have confidence in the future. But we should not allow that to cloud our mind, to think, well, the trials are over. We've proven ourselves to Yahweh now that we're faithful. We don't have to worry about anything much anymore. You see, it may well be that in this overwhelming joy and gladness that David feels at this time that perhaps he was a little overconfident perhaps he may have been a little complacent as a result of this thinking, look at this, look at all these things Yahweh's going to do for me and for my house it's incredible, it's unbelievable but he's going to do it, I know he's going to do it got every confidence it's going to happen Did he perhaps now feel that his warfare of faith was over because he'd received these wonderful things? We don't go very much further in David's life. Just over to chapter 11 and verse 2. And we read these words. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house And from the roof, he saw a woman. It's very sobering to think of that, isn't it? To go from the astonishing joy and gladness and thanksgiving that is expressed in this prayer in chapter 7 to find that some time later, and we don't know how long it was, was probably at least some months later after this. But it shows that we cannot afford to be off guard in regard to these matters. And there in chapter 11 and verse 1 and 2, we find the circumstances arise by which David begins to lust after another man's wife, which led him into disastrous circumstances and created a situation that was to become a curse upon his family from that time on. You see, there are tremendous things to be learned from the life of David. And as far as we ourselves are concerned, because Yahweh has blessed us with great promises, it does not mean that life will turn into an armchair ride into the kingdom. I always remember that was a, a phrase that uh, used to be used very often by our late brother H.P. Mansfield. He used to use that quite often. He used to say, don't let any brethren and sisters feel so confident in the, in the truth, although we should be confident in the, in the truth, that God is going to give us an armchair ride right all the way into the kingdom. Like being on a magic carpet, wafted away, we just keep going through the clouds and all the sunshine, and everything's going to be wonderful until we arrive at the entrance to the kingdom. Don't let anybody ever believe that, or think that, or be deluded by that is what Brother Mansfield used to say. And many of us learnt a lot from him in regard to those things. So from this experience of David, we learn that we have to be ever alert to meet the trials that are going to come upon us. Because there will be trials. You see, we've said many times, and some of you may be a bit tired of hearing me say this, but the simple fact is, That we express in our prayers to Yahweh our faith in Him and what He has promised and what He has already done for us. And He has every right to say to us, very well, you say to me, you have faith, now prove it. And to bring us into circumstances which require us to live by faith and to show our faith In a very real way. And we all know that the only hope for the human race lies in what is termed scripturally the root and the offspring of David. The bright and morning star. Revelation 22 and verse 16. It's almost the note upon which the whole of scripture concludes. There's not much to come after that, is there? After verse 16. The root and the offspring of David. That is a direct reference to the second of Samuel chapter 7 and the covenants of promise and the great promise of Yahweh is given to David in Psalm 89 verse 26 and 27 when he says I will raise him up to be higher than the, uh, the kings of the earth. You'll notice in Psalm 89 we might look at that. Psalm 89 And verse uh, 26 and 27. He shall crown to me, Thou art my Father, my Elohim, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. That concerns the promised sea. We have the words of Psalm 110 and verse 1, I will sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool, thereby fulfilling not only the Davidic covenant, but the Agenic covenant. Because the language of Psalm 110 verse 1, until I make thine enemies thy footstool, is an expression that is expressive of one treading on the head of the serpent. And so we conclude this prayer of David here with some words from Paul in Hebrews 4 and verse 1, which are really magnificent words, where Paul there reminds us of the need for our own watchfulness while receiving the promises of God with joy and thanksgiving and gladness of heart, Paul says, let us therefore fear. The emphasis here is upon ourselves. Let us therefore fear. Weymouth remembers it, let us be on our guard. Lest a promise being left of us entering into his rest any of you should seem to come short of it. And that's the final lesson really to be taken from verse 29. And Paul is not saying that we will come short, that, we must, that, that, that it is fatal that we should ever come short of the perfection that is in Christ because if that were what he meant then Christ would be a very lonely man in the kingdom. What he means there when he says lest any of you should come short of it he particularly means that we should not come short of receiving the prize when the kingdom day dawns that we should not come short of having the integrity that David had for all his faults, for all his weaknesses he had such integrity in the eyes of Yahweh that Yahweh forgave him his sins and he blessed him and gave him an inheritance in the kingdom and so having dealt with that then brethren and sisters and I hope that we've all received some real encouragement, not only from the covenant itself, the first part of chapter 7, but David's wondrous response to the great goodness of almighty God toward him. And having dealt with that, we now come to consider David's subjugation of the nations around about. He virtually he turned the Middle East upside down and David undertook seven major military campaigns which are recorded in chapter 8 and chapter 10. And they were in this order firstly against the Philistines. I'm going to show you this on a transparency in a minute. Secondly against Moab, thirdly against Zobar, fourthly against Edom fifth against Ammon, sixth against Syria and seventh the final defeat of the Ammonites because that evidently was not accomplished in the first warfare or the first military campaign against them. So now we see David having established his throne in Jerusalem and having united all the tribes under his rule. There he stands as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as will be the case with the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns, David found himself surrounded... Apart from the Mediterranean Ocean, he found himself surrounded by powerful enemies. And he knew, as a type of Christ, that he had to rule in the midst of his enemies. Psalm 110 verse 2, which is an expression to denote the king of the world, sitting upon his throne, ruling as a king, in the midst of his enemies, in the sense that they are all subjugated to him. He doesn't have to fear his enemies. And David knew that to consolidate that kingdom, he had to dispossess the enemies that surrounded him from their military might and their political power, exactly as Christ will subdue the nations. And so in seven great military campaigns which are a type of the seven thunders of Revelation chapter 10. David went to war against the Gentile powers, which hated him and feared him and feared the power of his kingdom. And in going to war against those nations, he subdued them as Christ will do. And of course the rest or the Sabbath of the kingdom could not be established under David until Gentile power had been overcome. And the same it will be before the 1,000 years of peace with the dedication of the temple can be attained, the power of every Gentile nation upon the face of the earth has got to be broken. And every nation has got to be brought into submission to an acceptance of the Son of God as ruler over all the earth. And how this will actually be done, as our brother Paul has pointed out, is rather interestingly referred to in Revelation 10 and verse 4, where John is told, seal up. But what we do know is recorded in Isaiah chapter 60 and at verse 12. And you notice what it states there, categorically, Isaiah 60 and verse 12. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. In other words, it will be accept the Son of God as King over all the earth, accept sound, proper, divine principles for worship or perish. The nations will be given no other alternatives. It won't be a matter, we'll go away for a couple of years and think it over and then we'll have another talk later on. Or let's arrange a few committees. And let's have committees here and committees there and committees elsewhere so that we can discuss these things and work out some kind of a compromise. This is the way in which it will be done. The nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. That's simple enough isn't it? We can understand that. And Yahweh doesn't change his principles for anyone. And above all else as far as dealing with mankind is concerned Yahweh does not negotiate with flesh. He never has done and He never will. He sets down firmly and clearly the principles upon which He will extend His arm of mercy to mankind. He does it now. He's done it down through all the ages, since the days of Cain and Abel. And He will do the same in the Kingdom Age. But it will be upon His terms and His conditions. There will be no negotiations so verse 12 says the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish yea those nations shall be utterly wasted and of course in a sense the type is seen there in the life of David now his first campaign was directed against the Philistines and we've done here another one of our transparencies which are once again may, as one of my earlier attempts, might prove a a suitable entry for the Archie Ball Prize next year, Uh, it doesn't really make much sense unless we know what we're talking about. What we've done here is uh, briefly set out the seven major military campaigns that David undertook. I hope everyone can see this because we'll get a little bit closer in a moment to outline some of them. in blue, of course, is what we have the outline of the Mediterranean coast, away there on the left. In blue also, we have the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Lake Janicera, the River Jordan, the Dead Sea and so forth, right up into the, uh, the north, Lake Hula. And then we have the various borders of the various uh, areas of where the nations were that David came to war against and the order in which he did it. Now I want to make this one point to you that that my map here is very vague, I did it this afternoon and uh, uh, it's, it's really a bit vague and I'll tell you why it's a bit vague because I have five Bible atlases at home and not one of them agree exactly with the others apart perhaps from the area of the Philistines, that seems to be fairly well established. For example, exactly where the borders of Ammon and Moab and uh, Syria were is, not, is not, not really known. But we can at least get an idea of, the, of almost certainly the direction as to where he was. So his first campaign was over here. I've, I've numbered them down here. Number one was over here. Uh, from This, of course, is Jerusalem, David's throne. Number one was against the Philistines and there are represented there the five cities of the Philistines we know that the Philistines were not really a nation under a king they were a confederacy of five cities and five princes or rulers and in that sense they very often in scripture typify the Gogian invader of the latter day which will come down as a confederacy perhaps the chief of those cities was at Gath. and you'll notice that Gaza right down in the south and Gath and also Ekron, for that matter, were very, very close to Israel's territory. Actually, the territory belonged to Judah, and they should have taken it, which is what David eventually did. But uh, anyway, that was his first military campaign there. The second one was against Moab, and we've got to bring this up a little bit for the moment. Moab, of course, we all recall that Moses brought the children of Israel up from the wilderness and passed through the land of Moab. Just here, on the uh, 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 over here, just on this side here, are the hills of Moab on that side of the uh, of the uh, uh, the Dead Sea. And so David would have made his way across the Jordan there and down into that area of Moab. Just where the southern southern border was of Moab, we don't rightly know how far it extended east. We don't know that either, but it would have been approximately that area of territory. And then down below them, of course, where we have come to number four, that's the Edomites down below. And we didn't have room on this chart so that it would be big enough for you to all see to be able to fit it all in. So number one campaign was over there to the west against the Philistines. His second military campaign was against the Moabites. Down here, number two. His third military campaign, I'd like you to notice this especially, he followed virtually to the letter the same tactics militarily as Joshua. He went to the east of the land, the west of the land, the east of the land and then to the north in the same way as Joshua went first to the south, then to the middle of the land and then to the north in Joshua's three major military campaigns. So number one against the Philistines, Number two against the Moabites, down here. Number three is very interesting. It's right up here in the north. It's so far up in the north, whether we didn't really have the uh, uh, ability or the room on our chart to put that area in. Most of us don't know an awful lot about Zobar, but Zobar was a very, very powerful kingdom. In effect, it it was part of Syria. It was the northern area of Syria that had its own ruler and it had a certain element of independence. But the interesting thing is that of all the other nations to be subdued, there must have been something very important about Zobar because David had to march his army 300 miles north to make war against those people of Zobar and that he did but as we shall see when we look at the verses uh, it's very very interesting the way it works out because Syria joined in the battle as well which David was to come back in his sixth war sixth war to uh, subdue the Syrians so that was number three number four and this is very interesting when we come and look at the verses we'll find this quite astonishing number four was against Edom and of course Edom was right down here below the Dead Sea right down here Edom occupied an area right down here like this or right to the, almost to the Gulf of Aqaba in fact it would have been to the Gulf of Aqaba in those days and some territory right out here to the west as well which is rather remarkable but we believe that what happened we believe when we put the narrative together there's a passage in Samuel another one in Kings another one in Chronicles an interesting verse in the Psalms which would appear to indicate to us Though when David was involved in that major battle, 300 miles to the north, that the Edomites took advantage of that and tried to make inroads into the kingdom in the south. And David therefore had to dispatch part of his army back down to the south to fight against the Edomites. It followed straight on from number three to number four, down, down to Edom and the Edomites. Number five, as you'll see over here, number five took him to war against the Ammonites, now just where their territorial bounds were, we're not quite sure. We do know that in the days of David, they occupied that area on the upper half of the Dead Sea on the eastern side. So that was his fifth battle. His sixth was up again to the northeast against the Syrians. Because he would already fought them, but they had to be defeated. And that he did soundly. And then finally in the seventh battle we find him going back east over the Jordan again to, to conclude the war against the, uh, the Ammonites which he had not been able to do previously. So we'll just leave that there for the time being in case uh, any of you want to uh, make a note of what we've got there. So what we have is first of all the first campaign which was his invasion of Philistia or the land of the Philistines recorded in the 2nd of Samuel chapter 8 verse 1 but also in the 1st of Chronicles chapter 18 and verse 1 and we know that the Philistines had earlier been defeated uh, by David in that he had driven them out of Israel's territory but he had not fought them within their own borders now he has to do that so in other words there's a great lesson here in regard to sin which all these Gentile nations represent. It's not good enough to just drive sin back to its own border or to its own haven or whatever it is. It's got to be defeated. It's got to be wiped out completely. In other words, sin is always a danger. As long as we know that it's there, as long as we know that it exists, well then uh, we, uh, we, will, we will be on our guard to, uh, to be aware of it. And of course, given sufficient strength, Uh, and at a time of weakness for Israel such as had occurred during Saul's reign we know that the Philistines would always pose a serious threat to David's kingdom as long as they were permitted to survive so David proposed to conquer the Philistines and he invaded their land and he laid siege to their main city which is known as we've said as Gath the second one from the bottom and the one that is nearest to the east uh, Geza, right at the bottom and then uh, uh, Gath uh, the, right right in the middle uh, Ashdod of course was almost right on the coast, Ashkelon was right on the coast, Ashdod very very close at that time now we find that recorded in the first of Chronicles chapter 18 verse 1 as we've said but here in Samuel it's interesting that the city of Gath is called here Metheg Amar And there must be a reason why that's done, because it was commonly known as Gath. But there is no question that this place here called Mepheg-Amar was Gath. The simple fact really is that the name means the bridle of the mother city. The bridle of the mother city. Now a bridle is used to control a horse. And of course, Gath was the mother city of the Philistines. Perhaps we can see in there a type of the mother city of all the churches. That of Rome. And the fact that Christ must war against the mother city to, uh, to overcome her and all that she represents. And of uh, this particular war against the Philistines, it's interesting to note that Josephus says that David, quote, overcame them in battle and cut off a great part of their country and adjoined it to the country of the Hebrews. Now notice that wording. He cut off a great part of their country and adjoined it to the country of the Hebrews. But he didn't totally annihilate them. So they were still there to be a problem later. And you see, that's what we know in regard to sin itself that it's there, it's always going to be there somewhere, lurking around the corner or somewhere. It's always going to be there. And it will be there until the Lord Jesus Christ returns to finally redeem us once and for all so that we will no longer know the trials and the pressures of sin. The Philistines in a sin manifestation in that sense will be totally destroyed. So then there is the second campaign with a defeat of Moab. We've got it recorded here in the 2nd of Samuel, chapter 8, verse 2. That, that is also referred to in the 1st of Chronicles, chapter 18, and at verse 2. Moab, as we've already seen, lay on the east of Israel. And it's quite interesting to remember that David's great-grandmother, Ruth, had been a Moabite. And it's also interesting to note that David had earlier had a friendly relationship with the Moabites, possibly for that very reason. And when he had been under a very severe threat from Saul, you might recall, as we studied in the first of Samuel 22 and verse 3 and 4, that he actually sent his own mother and father to Moab into Moab for safety. Now something's happened here. That we don't know what it is Maybe the king of Moab has offended David in some way Certainly he has shown David once and for all That the Moabites are enemies That they are Gentiles Despite any kindness that might have been shown uh, One way or the other And and there was some kind of, of evil That represented a danger to David's kingdom So therefore the Moabites had to be dealt with And again of David's war against the Moabites Josephus says that he overcame two parts of their army in the battle and took the remaining part captive and imposed tribute upon them to be paid annually. So in other words, he totally destroyed the power of Moab at this particular point. You'll notice in verse 2 of chapter 8, it says that he measured them with a line. You might wonder what that means. It means that he carefully planned the entire campaign. Determining his strategy beforehand. Now as we've seen, the outworking of the seven thunders has not been revealed to us yet. We don't know how it's going to be done. But you can be sure that when our generalissimo, the general of the great army, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he assembles the saints and allots them their various duties for the subjugation of the nations, it's all going to be thoroughly worked out. And it won't be some just you go here and you go there and see what you can do over here and ask for you lot, will you try over there and see what you, you can subdue there. It won't be done like that. There'll be a time when what is written or what has not been written concerning the seven thunders will be revealed. As a matter of fact, in Habakkuk chapter 3, there's a very interesting expression there that is almost identical to what we've got here. And it's in relation to Christ and the saints going forth to subdue the nations. In Habakkuk 3, of course, we have the Holy One shall come in from Mount Timon. And we know that Habakkuk 3, the early verses there, are dealing with Christ and the multitudinous saints coming forth out of the area of Sinai and beginning the march of the rainbowed angel. Now here in relation to that, in chapter 3 and verse 6, we have almost identical language To what we've got in regard to David in the second of Samuel 8 and verse 2. You'll find that it says in verse 6 of Habakkuk 3. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations. And we remember from verse 7 that the tents of Cushan will be the first to feel the wrath. Of, uh, of the Christ body the multitudinous Christ body but the idea of that language he stood and measured the earth it's perhaps a bit like a builder looking at the building site and saying well now how much foundation am I going to need here Of course, it's got to be level on the other side as well how much am I going to need there and then discussing with the owner perhaps where is the best place to site the building to the best advantage and so on that's all got to be worked out so it is in the strategy of war so it is in the strategy of war and in Habakkuk 3 and verse 6 we get a picture there of Christ standing there with all his multitudinous army and surveying the whole world scene as a battlefield to be subdued and having it all worked out and the strategy's planned and then going and fulfilling it according to that way. That's exactly of course what David did here in this particular case and you'll notice that in verse 6 Beautifully here in the 2nd of Samuel, chapter 8. In verse 6, we have this expression, But Yahweh preserved David whithersoever he went. A wonderful expression. Repeated again in verse 14. Yahweh preserved David whithersoever he went. Just imagine battle after battle. We're dealing here with seven major wars, they're not military scuffles. There are seven major wars and David out in front as the leader of his people as Christ will be in that sense. David out in front facing the greatest danger. His sword sword of already slaughtering the enemies of Yahweh. But Yahweh preserved David with us he went Is what the word says. You see the message is clear. We can only succeed spiritually when we have the blessing of God and we only get the blessing of God when we do things His way, when we uphold His Word, when we stand firm for His truth, when we uphold it, when we speak it, when we defend it, we can only succeed spiritually when we have the blessing of God. And we may be striving in the face of great and sore trials, but it doesn't matter. doesn't matter how sore the trial is, doesn 't matter how great the pressure, if Yahweh is with us, who can be against us doesn 't matter, does it so then there 's the third military campaign, which we 're going to have a look at the last of these, God willing, at our next class. The third campaign is against Zobar in the north, that long, long place, far, far away, right in the, uh, near the Orontes Valley, two hundred miles north northeast of the northern end of the Sea of Galilee which makes it 300 nearly 300 miles from Jerusalem a long long way but still within the area of the land promised to Abraham and David knew that and David had that in mind in the uh, in the affecting uh, uh, of these various wars against the gentile nations and God willing we will carry on from that point at our next class